All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Balanced Blues Brothers podcast. Today, it's going to be myself, Travis Flock, joined by Ola, and we're going to be going through to break down yet another bad performance and poor result against Tottenham Hotspurs uh, um, away to Spurs last weekend. Uh, we're recording this Monday afternoon, and yeah, it was a really terrible match. Um, I thought the first 20 minutes we did okay. I thought we looked like we had some threat going forward. I thought we looked like we were going to at least be competitive, but uh, then everything changed right before halftime. It was like a 10 minute scuffle referees trying to figure out what to do, you know, players getting red carded, not getting red carded players that weren't even involved in the entire scrum getting yellow carded. It was just like an officiating farce, um, which is, Honestly, that's par for the course in England anymore. I I don't know what is in the water over there, but it looks like nobody in England has any idea what the rules of the game are, and it looks like it's there's no objectivity in the rules of the game in England. And it it always amazes me because I watch other leagues like Serie A, uh, La Liga, and this doesn't go on. It's not this continual officiating farce. It's not an officiating that has no consistency from person to person or VAR to VAR or just called VAR too, either or, depends on how you want to look at it. Um, but yeah, I thought up until that, things were okay. We come out of the half, Spurs in about five seconds, get it down the field, get a shot off, goes for a corner, and you know what happens next. They get the corner, ball spills out, miscommunication between Enzo and Keppa. Enzo kicks it, goes right to Oliver Skip, goes right through Felix, and fires in off the crossbar, boom, 1-0 Spurs. That's where we are, and it only got worse from there. And and I don't know about any listeners out there, but I generally had the feeling that when we went into, you know, uh, going into the start of the second half, right, we got scored on very, very early. I I legitimately felt like there was no chance that we were ever going to get a point out of that match. Once we went down to start, I figured this match is over. These players are going to drop their heads, and we're just going to pack it in and lose again. And that's exactly what we did. Um, leading up to, you know, Kane, sec- Kane getting the second goal of the game, 2-0 Spurs, done and dusted. And the pressure on Graham Potter is starting to become colossal. Um, and I think a lot of what we'll talk about will probably hinge around that. So kind of the structure today, we're going to go through the match a little bit. I don't have much to say about the match. I thought if we want to look at best players, maybe Enzo again, maybe, I mean, I don't know. Like, really, everybody looks pretty poor uh, collectively. Um, and we'll get into maybe some more of that. But I don't really have any positives to talk about. Um, you look at the pass map, and it's basically just a triangle on the left side um, between Shillel, Sterling, a center back, center mid, and another center mid. We really just tried to go the entire match down the left side, which is cool, right? Maybe we actually have some form of pattern of play here. 
by using diamonds and potentially trying to use that diamond to overload on the left flank and then see what we can work from there. But we didn't see anything materialize from it. And quite frankly, I thought that performance was just as bad as Southampton. I didn't see really any major improvements that stick out to me. Um, another loss caused game. Here we are yet again. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. We scored like one goal in the entire calendar year in the Premier League. This is one of the worst runs I can. It's 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 the it is the worst run for Chelsea Football Club my entire lifetime. I was born in 1994. It's the worst run uh, that we've ever had. So this is where we are. Um, we'll talk about the manager. Uh, we'll talk about a lot of other things too. We have a lot of listener questions to get to, so I'm just going to stop there. And you know, a lot. Of what what are some of your thoughts from the match? And like I know we talked about it just before the recording started. There just isn't much to say about this one other than, yeah, we sucked. That's that's the way it is. <laughs> Move on from there. Yeah, I, I think the, the the match was, to be honest, when I saw that Badia Shiloh was benched, I, I was surprised, to say the least. But I don't think Kulibali was actually bad. I think Kulibali actually played well. But I, I felt many of the things that we, we got with Badia Shiloh was aerial dominance, distribution, Pass selection, but Ashley's passing is, is a lot more dynamic. And I, I saw a pass map where Kulibali recycled the ball almost exclusively between uh, Enzo Fernandez and the same side, Ben Chilwell. I think but Ashley would have spread the ball to other parts of the pitch more. He, he switches of play, his long balls. I think that's just a few of the things that Badashile would have given us. But I think Kulibali, in his own right, had a good game, and I'm not particularly. I was surprised that Badashilo was benched, but I can't say I don't understand why. Because Kulibali did have a good game when he came in in the absence of Badashilo, and let's not forget that Kulibali was not going to be on the bench forever. I know it's easy to say, "Oh, this player has been in bad form. Just get the other guy in. He's been playing well. Forget this this other guy for the rest of the season." But that's not really how squad dynamics work. And there are a lot more things that go on at the club than just playing the player you want to play and ignoring the rest of them. That never works. So that one is not is not so much of an issue. I just feel that Ashley probably would have given us more in terms of passing, playing out of the back. And especially in the absence of Thiago Silva, would have probably done with that. I think the as far as game gameplay went. I think we the, the most interesting thing that happened in the first half was the fight, really, and the yellow card, red card confusion of Hakim Ziyech and Stuart Atwell. I, I don't think it was a confusion, though. I think it was I think it was more Atwell giving him the red card so he could check it. Because VR cannot be cannot be used for yellow card offenses. So he had to make it a red and then check it. I think he had been told a lot of things in his ear and he had to make sure that he, he saw it for himself before he made his decisions. And after overturning it, you could see he saw enough in the footage to to feel that maybe a red card was harsh. I think there's a lot of context to the, the whole squabble that happened there. But I think ultimately, I wouldn't have been surprised if the red had stood. But up until then, we, didn't, we hadn't really looked interesting. I think the goal that we, we considered, the first goal we considered, why, why some may say, oh, Kepa has been considering long shots. 
I think Enzo plays a huge part in that goal by picking the ball out of Arizabalaga's hands because Kepa, yes, he spilled it, but he was surrounded by three Chelsea players and all they needed to do was just stand there while he picked it up. Enzo takes it out of his hands and then clears it back into danger and, and, and the, goal, the goal then happens. That's probably easier, you know, that hindsight, hindsight tells the best stories and it's, 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 it's 2020. But I, I think that was just the confusion. And the confusion is not particularly surprising in the state we are in as a squad. Because when we are when we are in bad form like this, many players want to take responsibility. You either have too few people taking responsibility or too many people taking responsibility and getting in each other's way. So that is perhaps a function of the situation that we are in now. I think the... The second goal we considered, I, I thought Mount was probably fouled, but there's a, there's a temptation to think if Bayashile was on the pitch at the time, he probably just heads it clear because Eric Dyer can't jump on Bayashile's shoulder as he's like six foot five. So there's also that. But I, I think that's just a, a lazy way of analyzing the game, probably. I do think that Bayashile helped us a lot in defensive uh, set pieces, and that goal was maybe a function of that but also if if Erdaya is, is missing mount man and he loses his marker then there's not really much that can be done i think the 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 score line probably looks worse than the, the actual performance but the fact that Chelsea created i think we took only one shot from inside the box and and created zero clear cut chances just shows you that you know we're flat offensively even if we're not horrendous we're flat and a Tottenham that we are used to beating, though we can't we can't we can't go into a future thinking, oh, we always beat these guys, so we definitely beat them now. Every game has, has its own context, and that has to be considered. But I think that kind of performance would, would feel, I think is what I should use, would feel worse because it's against Tottenham. Just the way losses against Arsenal and you know Liverpool feel that much worse when they come against those kind of opponents. But I think a 2-0 victory was par for the performance. I, I don't think Tottenham railroaded us, but they did enough to, to get themselves two goals, and we didn't do enough to get ourselves one goal. I mean, even before they scored, uh, at some point, Hoybier was strong goal and more or less slotted it past Kepa, but it, it hit the bar and came, off, it, and came, off, came back off the bar, and then it was cleared. So they had come close to scoring before then. It wasn't they didn't get two lucky goals. I I think the yeah, the, the situation we're in is, is as bad as it looks, and I've been saying that for a while. I don't think fans are overreacting. Well, I think those who are calling for who are sending death threats directly to, to Potter about his about him and his kids are, are going way too far. It's never that serious. And abuse in this fan base is something that has been has been happening for quite a while. And I yeah. think that just has to stop. We can't go around threatening managers because, you know, oh, it's my club and we are used to winning. And so, so it's your club you are used to winning. And so you go you go threatening a man's children because he's trying to do his job. Whether he yeah. thinks he's doing a good job or not, he's trying to do his, his job to the best of his abilities. And you can't... I mean, it will not be fair if you are sitting at your desk at work and someone just comes and lifts your laptop or whatever it is you're using to work and flings it to the floor and, and threatens you and tells you they know where you live and 
it doesn't make any sense. And we, we really need to stop doing that as a fan base. It makes yeah. absolutely no sense at all. Yeah, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And it's it's a really, really poor thing that's happening. Like the, the behavior is reprehensible, to say the least. Um, you know, just as my own thing, um, you know, our Nick, who runs that Chelsea pod, kind of did a similar thing where he talked about the death threats. And I'm glad that we brought this up because, you know, I think there's a continual problem in the fan base where there's a way to express criticisms and and doubts and this and that. But when you just do it, and Andy Saunders said this as well, which actually got a lot of people pissed pissed off at me for agreeing with uh, Andy Saunders. If you don't know who he is, he runs um, uh, the Chels podcast or Chelsea podcast. It's at Chelsea podcast is the name of it, Uh, along with Carrie Levy and Gary Hayes, the typical guys there. They're a great crew. Give them a shout. Give them a listen if you... uh, need some more Chelsea podcasts in your, in your life. But, you know, Andy Saunders said it best that if you just, if you're just relentlessly negative all the time on the timeline and every tweet's negative and you go to the ground and you're at the match and the only thing you do at the match the entire time is bitch out loud about the mo about the manager and moan about them. You know, he, he said, you're part of the problem. You're, you're part of the reason why Potter receives death threats because every instance of relentless negativity Whichever way you want to look at it, every single instance of of relentless negativity is just indirectly encouraging a little bit more and then a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And that little bit more just compounds every day, compound, 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 right, until it becomes death threats. And and, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, you yourself, if you've done this or are the reason why death threats happen. I'm just saying there's an indirect effect, right, that it's the same thing. Like basically saying, well, because one person said something and did something, I don't have any responsibility for that. I live in America. I heard a president say that for four years, right? I know what it's like to have rhetoric, words, lead to shifting people's thoughts and behaviors, which then leads to terrible actions. Like I watched this for four years. And it's you don't even have to watch it like in a presidential dynamic. If you just understand, like, you know, I, I'm a I'm an evolutionary biologist by trade. Um you understand indirect effects in my line of work, right? That that certain actions within species have indirect effects on their own species and on other species, right? Um, besides the direct effects, um, especially within predator-prey dynamics. But uh, I'm, I'm getting a little off track here, but my point being is that, you know, this rhetoric has an indirect effect, and that is it, the indirect effect is that it encourages further rhetoric, which has further indirect effects, until we finally lead up to the direct effect of death threats to Graham Potter. And it's, it's so abhorrent. And uh, I don't really have the words to describe you, somebody so mentally ill and deranged that they send death threats to an innocent eight-year-old boy. I, I don't have, uh, I don't really have words for that. That's. Um... Yeah. I, I, I think the, the, I think we, we we need to be careful of 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 controlling how criticism works. I mean, first of all, Potter came in we're fifth when he came in. We're now tenth, and we're we're so tenth that I think before the, the Tottenham match, we're the same distance to the top four as we are to to the relegation zone. That's a bang mid table. That's as mid table as you get. But Fans have a right to be frustrated and fans have a right to be irritated. But 
I am irritated. You are irritated. Many people are irritated. The mass going fans are irritated. The online fans are irritated. The, the Chelsea players are irritated. Potter himself is irritated. No one is happy about the situation that we are in. And we have to, to allow fans to express themselves while still, while still emphasizing that death threat is too notice too far. Because I've seen a lot of, of people make the case that Potter should be sacked. I don't think Potter should be sacked. I also recognize that at some point, what I want is not as important because he's working with a group of players. Yeah. He's been employed by certain people. So whether I want him to be sacked or not, some other people are evaluating his performances and may go, I don't think he can continue. So there is that. So if fans want him sacked, if, I've always thought that booing, booing the, the players on the pitch when they are going into the tunnel at halftime, at full time, I understand that. You pay you, you, you pay money to go to, 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 to a match. The, the team performs poorly. You are irritated. You boo them. I don't think booing the manager, I don't think booing individuals in a match situation makes any sense. Because if you boo Cucurella, because Cucurella is, is, is not playing well, how does that help Cucurella? And since Cucurella is our player, how does that help us? If you put Cucurella in a bad state of mind, he plays poorly, it further even affects us as, as, as Chelsea fans. So that doesn't make any sense. It's a team sport. When the team plays poorly, boo the team, let them go. There is nothing, there's no need to boo the manager. I personally don't think we can put any responsibility on those who are. Then again, constant negativity, I hear it. But at the same time, I think it's a specific kind of person that goes to look for, because you have to find it, you don't just have it with you, to look for Graham Potter's personal email. I mean, I write for a, a, a Chelsea fan website, and I don't even have his personal email. I don't even have his work email. What will I be doing with that? I don't even know his, his Twitter handle if he has one. What would I be doing with that? If you want to say anything about Potter, tweet it out. Of course, not death threats, but it takes a specific kind of person to go to, to, to his email and send him death threats. I think it is that same kind of person that goes to, to send monkey signs and, and racist abuse at players. When England lost the, the, the Euros, everyone was frustrated that England lost the Euros. But a specific kind of person went to Rashford and, and, and the players who lost and, 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 and racially abused them. I think there's, there's, a, there's a degenerate part of it. And I don't think being annoyed at the situation lumps you in with those who don't just have functioning brains. I think it's yeah. a specific kind of person that actually goes to, to threaten a manager's life. Because... As much as you can say, oh, well, it's just empty words. They're hiding behind the keyboard. How do I know that it's you don't not. know where I live? Someone who is crazy is crazy at the end of the day. So mm-hmm. I don't think we can we can put that on on, 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 on fans who are frustrated with the situation in the club and are calling for Potter to be sacked. I don't yeah. think this is the first time... I, I don't think this is the first time Potter has been in a job where people have called for him to be sacked. But I think it's 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 a difference. Again, Granit Xhaka also faced this. He, 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 at, at the point where his wife was pregnant with his child, Arsenal fans wished death on, on, on his unborn baby. And Shaka has, has faced criticism as a player several times. He has said he has said a lot. He has been booed. He has been told you are nonsense. He has been told you don't belong at this level. But there's a, a distinct difference between that and going after your family directly. I, I think 
criticizing players for what they do on the pitch, they are connected to us because they play for our club. That is how we interact with them. That's how we know them. We don't know their personal life. We don't know what they do when they are at home. And it doesn't really matter to us. We watch them on the pitch. If they do well, we praise them based on that. If we want to criticize them, we criticize them based on that. So criticizing a, a football professional on the footballing merits makes sense to me. Going after their personal life is a no-no. It's out of it completely. And I think people criticizing Potter for the state Chelsea is in, I understand it. Obviously, we can't put this all on Potter because he's not working with himself. He's not the one playing the football. He's handling some things. The players are handling the other things. So there's a collective responsibility there. But he's the one in charge of the team. And if he's getting criticized and people are calling for him to be sacked, I understand it. Potter understands it. The players understand it. The, the, the board understands it. But going after his personal life, that, that one I can, I, can, I can never get behind. So I, I don't think we can, we can really say it, it, it's, the, it's, it's the negativity from fans who, who want him sacked that, that has, well, has led to death threats. I think... Yeah, I was going to say, too, I, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I think that you can express negative thoughts and it not have an indirect effect leading to what we've seen happen to Graham Potter. But I think if you if you're somebody who all you're doing is like 50 tweets a day that are just relentless negativity, that's yeah, what yeah, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. A, That's when it's encouraging. Like, basically, it's just a snowball effect. It's a pile on effect. Right. Everybody sees it's it's just basically flooding timelines with with relentless mm-hmm. negativity. Like if you're somebody that's going out there after t- after yesterday and telling me, you know, on the on the timeline, Graham Potter's not good enough. This has to improve. If we make a managerial change, I'm not gonna complain. That's fine. You can do that. But if you're gonna do it 60 times a day, seven times, you know, seven times a week. You know, I mean, that's that's 330 instances of of, role, of just negativity. Like when you could just do the same thing and express your opinion in a more uh, concise way that doesn't just yeah. encourage relentless, you know, criticism and pile on. So I, I think it's. What, what, I, I mean, we're I, definitely I, 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 agreeing I, I, here that like you can you can intelligibly do this and do it in the right ways and say the right things and have a more a, a lesser frequency with with just continual negativity, but. When it gets into the realm of all you're doing all the time is just that. That's where I think I kind of have the breakdown a little bit. But um, I, yeah, I, 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 mean, I don't think there needs to be pile on for for death threats to happen. I think you just this one idiot to go. Yeah, get, get out of my club. You deserve to die. I wish death on you. I wish. I mean, we've seen it several times. A, a game finishes. A, a player has a, make makes a mistake that costs the game, and you go to the timeline. You see red X's all over their pictures. You see all sorts of things being said about the player. I think it just takes someone who doesn't, who can't control his his emotions that that, that does that. It, so, yeah, exactly. I, and yeah, that, that like what you're saying, thinking. somebody that can't control their emotions, a hundred percent. That that's what it is. And like when that person who already has a problem controlling their emotions is exposed to nothing but negative emotions, it's going to bring well, yeah, out it, more it, negative it emotions. Combines. Yes, I get that. Yeah, yeah. And and that's where I guess I'm trying to say is like, I agree with you that it really is the actions of a few who make everything poor in this instance. But I just think that the continual Twitter toxicity pile, like everything, it, it's just, it's priming people that already have these problems and th- this emotional instability to just think more negative, unstable thoughts. Um, it, it, it's... It's disgusting. That's all I'm going to say. And there's there's no place for it. Um, there's just not. I don't wish death upon really. I don't wish death upon like anything really. I, I'm 
value DNA pretty much all the same across any form of life. But uh, I mean, you learned earlier here. in the show what my background is, so it should be unsurprising. Um, but yeah, we we actually got a lot of listener questions today, and looking forward to going through some of these. Um, actually, thanks for all of you that submitted questions. It, it means a lot. We can kind of start growing this podcast a bit more and, and getting more engagement because um, we definitely think that we're worth it. So, uh, so mm-hmm. one thing that we're going to start here, uh, you know, kind of dedicated listener um, at Prashant underscore CFC. And if I mispronounce that, I apologize. That's never been my strong suit. Um, but, you know, one of our other hosts, Jordan, who, uh, you know, sad to hear that he, he's going to kind of be stepping away from a lot for a little bit. Um you know, disappointed that that has to happen, but there are, you know, much more important things going on for him. But he had a tweet that said, uh, I, he said, you know, we're going to the past map that I alluded to earlier uh, in the intro about kind of that diamond on the left side between Koulibaly, Chilwell, Fernandez, Jowl, Felix, or you know, Ricky Sterling. Sorry. Uh, sorry about that. That's my dogs going nuts. And Jordan was saying he actually doesn't think that the pass map is weird based on who was playing Sterling, Felix, and Enzo, our left-sided players. But he said he's not a fan of the the four four two kind of formation that we're running out of it. Um, and what the question was was, can we talk about this, uh, which is the pass map? Why are we structurally all over? And what happened to our press counter press? Uh, why do we do this half baked press like how we did in the initial days of Sorry? Um, I'll just kind of open up there. I'll I'll let you take kind of like the structural part and I'll, and I'll talk, if you want to talk a lot about kind of why are we like structurally all over the place um, with our press counter press. And I'll talk about kind of the half baked nature of, of the press in terms of how he's comparing to sorry. Okay. I I, I think as for the structure, I think there's many things that, that go into the structure of the team. I've always been one who thought the structure of a team is determined by a manager. A, a manager puts his stamp, first of all, on the team by how they are off the ball. But I, I also think Chelsea has lost a, a key player that you can't really... Yeah, exactly. St- structure determines many things, actually. It determines how you build up, how you transition defensively, how you transition offensively, how you play out from the back. You know, th- there are many things that, but it, but it starts from there. And what we had in Jorginho was a guy who helped us play out from the back, an actual defensive midfielder, someone who was very good positionally. Because what, part of what Jorginho did, many people say, oh, I can play five yarders for, for Chelsea. I don't, I don't, we don't need Jorginho to do that for us. The idea that Jorginho just played five-yard passes for us, and that's what made him key is extremely crazy because part of what he helped us with was defend, defend, uh, transitioning to defending. I'll give an example. A- against Spurs, Enzo Fernandez got involved in six tackles. He was dribbled past five times and won one tackle out of those, out of those six. What Jorginho does very well, which some people say is a lack of athleticism, uh, athleticism is he helps the team to hold up counter-attacks until more people can get involved to stop them. So if he can't stop them himself, he knows how to slow down a player enough that it, it that those who are faster can get involved in the situation and then will have the numerical advantage in defending. And that is something that 
only intelligent players can do. Not that Enzo Fernandez is not intelligent, but Jorginho is 10 years older than him or, or more. So the, the experience gap is, is, is understandable. I think that was part of what Jorginho did for us. The other thing Jorginho did for us is he helped out in build-up. And what that means is when Jorginho is on the pitch, build-up doesn't just go only one way because a lot of the play goes through him. So he will determine where play goes through at every point in time. And, and what we had against Tottenham, I may, I may be completely wrong here, but what we had against Tottenham was players who were doing what they were most comfortable with. Like Jordan rightly mentioned, Sterling, Felix, and, and Enzo are left-sided players. They're used to playing on the left side of the pitch. And when they're on the pitch together, they tend to feel, let's just build up between ourselves. Since we understand what we are trying to do, let's just do what we are most familiar with. So, so there was that. And when that happens, at some point, the opposition clocks on to the fact that you are building down one way and their job is easier for you. Because if you knew for a fact that a player was going to follow a certain path, like, like let's say you knew that Haaland was going to try to take a shot from the corner of the six-yard box, the, the, the left corner of the six-yard box every time, you know you know where to, you know how to, to handle it. When, when you are predictable in how you build up, the other team finds it easier to, to nullify you and to and to handle you. I think that was, that was also another problem. The, the, we didn't have someone to play the Georgian role for us. Granted, Enzo has been trying to do that, but Enzo is more of an eight than a, than a DM. And because he played in a, in a pivot for, for Benfica, many people seem to think he was a DM. He's not. He's not a sitter. And, and what a sitter does, or, or someone like Georgina is, he helps in, in build up, he helps in defending, and he helps in, in attacking but not in the traditional way you think it does. But when there's someone at the base that you can bounce things off of, you can recycle play with. The other part of it was Thiago Silva wasn't on the pitch, but Achille wasn't on the pitch. And those two are the best passers we have in, in terms of defensive players by a considerable distance. Not that Kulibali and, and Fofana are bad passers of the ball, but those guys are just better, especially in build-up. With none of them on the pitch, it, it meant everyone who was on the pitch that was involved in build-up did the first thing that came to his mind. And so, so that was part of the issue. So I think before we go to the Potter is responsible for our structure being all over the place, I actually think part of what has affected him is the personnel to actually do what he wants to do. Granted, he dropped Badashile of his own accord, so I don't know why he did that. But there was no Jorginho, there was no Thiago Silva, and so all that combined, there's no one at the, in, the, in the team currently who can play Jorginho's role. I have to say that no one in the team. Oh, but actually was dropped for rotation. That, make, that makes sense. There's no one in the team that can play Jorginho's role. So when Jorginho is not on the pitch, there will be differences in how we build up. It will probably not be good differences, but there will be differences. So whenever he's not on the pitch and we go, why is our build up this way? If Thiago Silva is not there, because what the other thing but actually does very well is switching, switching of play. And what that means is when he tries to play down his side and he sees this place is getting congested, he can easily switch play to the other side and then we can we can build from there because there'll be more space down that side. Kulibali and, and Fofana didn't do much of that. So that also affected us you know, in, in, in ways. So I think this structurally, player personnel was more of a factor than, than, than Potter's 
stamp itself. Yeah, and just to kind of answer the second part of the question, which is about the press being similar to Conte or similar to the sorry days, I think it's got to do really with the fact of where we are with Potter and, and you know, basically coordinating your press very well with everybody takes a lot of time uh, from a tactical standpoint. And we've actually been missing a lot of our first team players. We're just now kind of getting them back for the last few weeks. So there's just kind of a there's just kind of a lack of familiarity, I think, that's getting to things. And when the game starts to break down, they go into their comfort zone. All right, so our next question comes again uh, from Prashanth, and he's asking, you know, what do you think Potter needs to do to avoid a, rele- a relegation scrap from with a you know from a tactical setup? And he's wanting to know, is it now depending on the fitness of Conte? So I'll take the first part. I'll let you do the second part um, about Conte. So as far as a relegation scrap. I don't believe that we're in one to start with, and I don't think that we're going to get into one. You, I mean, yeah, if you extrapolate on a far enough timeline with the current rate, we probably would get into a relegation scrap. But I, you know, I I don't know. I, I don't think that we're going to get there anyway. But I think that, you know, the question of what does he have to do to avoid a relegation scrap? And, I mean, honestly, I think he's just got to – basically tell tell some players how it is right i'm gonna pick my 20 to 23 people for that are here right now and i'm only gonna work with these guys and everybody else you can just train on your own on the side and it's really brutal and no manager wants to be in that position to do those things but it gets to the point where there's just too many players there's too many people there's too many egos there's too many emotions there's too many human things to juggle and he at the end of the day potter is not a an, a human resources manager, right. Of a, of a multi-billion dollar company. He's, he's a football coach at the end of the day. That's what he is. So I, I, and I understand that football management has a lot of human sides and things, but you know, I mean, we almost, we have three first teams training every day, three, three first teams training every single session. It's just too many people. It's just too many. And if you're trying to actually coach all of them, and if you if you do coach, you probably are aware of some of this stuff, but you just can't, man, everybody has a different developmental curve in learning a new new system and tackle structure. Some people are slower learners, but then once they really grasp it, it takes off quickly. Some people just progressively have a linear rate of learning. Others, you know, it, it can be really rapid at first and then plateau. So my point being is that when you've got three first teams and everybody has some form or difference difference of form and how quickly they're going to basically learn these tactical setups. I mean, you're just basically fighting so many different ends of the spectrum and where everybody on that 33 man team falls within the spectrum of tactical learning and and automation, right? That that it's just, it's just, and I know you're going to be annoyed with my answer, but it really does. It does take time because, uh, and if you're not aware of this, if you take every player and you just throw them into the deep end, metaphorically speaking, you create what's known as the survival of the fittest dynamic with your coach actions, right? So your coaching actions are actions that you describe, explain to yourself, pick what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and then you execute it, right? So you could think of that in a training regimen. And if you just throw everybody the deep end, you're going to create a massive injury over, uh, you're going to create a much worse injury crisis than we've already been in because you don't throw players to the deep end because that's when they're most likely to have injuries during tactical, you know, switches in tactical training. Um, And just to that point more, when you're fighting everybody at different stages 
And then not only you're fighting different stages of tactical understanding, you're fighting all of the underpinning egos and malcontent and all of these other things that are going to form by this player not getting picked and this player getting picked and blah, blah, blah. He's going to pick 11 guys and piss 22 other ones off. It's a, and that's why today his comment about, you know, how large the first team is, you know, as if you've coached, you understand that it's really, really hard to have 33 people to manage when you're trying to do some things with about 15 to 20 people only. Right. It's just a difficult dynamic. It's, it's abnormal, but it is what we, it is what it is. And this is where we are. Um, So I I don't think that we're in relegation and I don't think we're going to get there. Now, if if it does get poor, you know, really, really poor, and we get pulled into that, then to answer your question, what does he do to address that? Uh, you just got to go back to the basics at that point because the Spurs match made it look like footballing actions, like basic football actions were slow, labored, struggling to do that, like to execute. It was difficult, which shows that the brain is not working, right? Because – Part of executing any football action is thinking about what's my next action. Maintain the ability to think about my next action. And it looked like yesterday, not only were there no thoughts about what is my next action, but even wind executing situational actions, like they're literally in the, in the moment of executing a decision. It was poor. It was very poor. Um, Simple passes weren't able to be connected. So many things that were wrong from that match. But to answer your question, I don't think we're in a tactical setup that's going to get us into relegation. And if we do, you have to go back to the most basics of basics to basically build these players back up from ground zero. Um, That's what I would do. So, and then the second part of that question is, do do we basically rely upon Conte to not get into relegation? I mean, if we're depending on Conte, no, I don't think we're depending on Conte. I also agree that we are not in... We are in relegation form, but I don't think we'll get into a relegation fight. I also think that if we do get into a relegation fight, we will not be depending on Kante because we've not depended on Kante in two years. We've not depended on Kante and we, and we, we will not start now in a relegation fight. I think it, it, may, it may be as, as, as basic as playing three at the back and hoping that, you know, Joe Felix and another attacker can combine well enough to get you goals. I mean, it's a similar thing that Suku did, except we're not in relegation form or in a relegation fight, but he did get results. I Someone suggested that Potter knew what to do to get us out of this funk that we're in, but he's just trying to play his own way until he can't anymore. I don't know how true that is, but yes. Whether we're depending on the fitness of Kante, no, I don't think we are, because I, I don't think Kante is going to come back and be the Kante that, you know, of 16, 17 or of 2021 where he won he was a key player in our Champions League win or our Premier League win I think if we play if we rely on Kante that means we play him 90 minutes here and then 90 minutes the next game and if we, if we do that he's likely going to get injured again and then we'll be back here so I think you know I, I don't think we can depend on Kante at all from uh, at this point in time we can't yeah and I, I would tend to agree I think Conte is going to be like that weapon you know you you kind of keep in the back shelf until it's time to pull it out um but only you, you only pull it out when it's absolutely necessary um metaphor if you want to put it in a giant metaphor but uh next question comes in from Sky um and she's asking are players giving up the fight uh we have players who have always had to fight for minutes 
but it seems that the ones who are just handed them aren't even trying to play for the club. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll start a little bit on that is that, and I'll, and I'll kind of just pass it over to you then is like, I think there is a general problem with players losing interest. And I say that because we've heard about it since 2015, right? I've heard Mourinho tell me there's a problem. I've heard Conte tell me there's a problem. I've heard sorry, tell me there's a problem. Uh, I've heard Lampard tell me there's a problem. I've heard Tuchel tell me there's a problem. I haven't heard Potter say there's a problem yet, but I see a lot of the similar signs where, man, it just, it just doesn't look like some players are interested in being here at all. Um, and what, and, and doesn't look at their interest on the field. And this isn't just, you know, you're, you're, this isn't me taking a shot at the usual scapegoats, like a Bami Yang or whoever else it might be like, they're, they're legitimate former players of the year that look like they cannot be bothered right now. Kovacic doesn't look like he wants to be here at all. And I'm a big Kovacic fan. And that sucks. But it looks like where we're at. And there's also another guy, Mason Mount, who looks like he does not care whatsoever right now. He, I, I think that during the game yesterday, every time they flashed to him, it was just him screaming obscenities at Spurs and doing nothing on the pitch. He's just picking fights. That's all he was doing. So it shows you right there his mentality is not focused on the game, but it's focused on some emo- on some underlying emotional state that he's in. So you know, the, to me, there's a lot of players that fit this bill, because and that gets to the problem I just talked about a 33 man squad and all of these emotions and and malcontents and all of these things to manage. So yeah, I think there is a problem, a general problem with with player buy in, and it's and I say that because. I've had like over five managers in a row over almost an eight year span. Tell me the same damn thing. Every time there's something wrong with this group of players. And then that something wrong, being wrong with the players to me points at a wider issue within the club, because the only even there's not even constants between Mourinho to now with really any playing staff, except for Aspilicueta. And I guarantee you he's not the one doing this behind the scenes. So it points that there's a culture at the club that lets this continually go on. And I think we're still in the midst of that. And that's why I've been such a proponent of changing the culture of the club. And if you're really interested about, you know, you're listening and you're interested to hear more about this culture of the club, stay tuned because there's going to be some episodes released I recorded over the weekend about this. Um, so I'll, I'll end it there and I'll let you kind of talk about the fight and kind of maybe meritocracy or lack thereof. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if players are giving up the fight, but I do know that you mentioned you mentioned meritocracy, and I think meritocracy is something that we fans try to define, but it's more much much more difficult to define than we think. I think that no manager runs a straight meritocracy. I think managers try to mix meritocracy and squad politics because I think there is squad politics. I think some players get selected. I'm not I'm not referring to any any particular player now, but I think in every squad, some players get selected for reasons other than just purely playing playing on the pitch and and what they what they offer on the pitch in terms of, of playing football. I think wages play a part in some selections. Not that every every lineup that is made is the highest paid players at the club put on the pitch, no. But I think when several players are vying for the same position, you would often see the one with 
who who is on the on the higher on the higher wages win out most times. And you may think, oh, but he's the worst player. Why does he continue to play? It's because to the club, that player is more of an asset than the the other guy. Because you can if you wonder why Zietas Ziet often gets dropped. Sometimes he, he plays well, sometimes he plays well, he gets dropped. Sometimes you think, oh, he didn't have that much of a good game, he gets dropped. It's because when you think about it, there are many players in his position that uh, have a higher status in the clubs, to the club, I, I should say. I mean, Ryan Sullen is going to play a lot of minutes, not particularly because he is the best player at the club, because he's not. But he will play a lot of minutes because he's our highest earner. And when you're, our, you're a club's highest earner, there's so much benching that you can be benched, if you get what I mean. I mean, Sterling was injured, and then he he's, he's back now. And Mikhail Modric, who cost, the, who cost the club 88 million, is now on the bench. So I think there's a lot of squad politics involved. I think the underlying, in this particular situation, I think the underlying problem is there are quite a lot of players. And I know many people have heard the, oh, why are you saying there are too many players as an excuse? I'm not, I'm not using it as an excuse, but it must be said that there are things that have consequences. Whether they are going to be used as excuses or not, when there are certain problems in the squad, it will lead to certain other problems. And Bailey's recruitment means he came in in the summer, got Sterling in, got Kulibali in, got uh, Kukurela in, got a lot of these players in for huge money. Got Aubameyang in, got, you know, and Aubameyang is on, is on 160. Aubameyang is on 160K. So he got all those players in. And then, we're not playing particularly well. And then the, the, the January window comes, and he just gets more players in. Gets in Badiashile after getting Kukurela, after getting Kulibali, and Fofana gets in Badashile, and then Badashile comes in and plays well. So a 200 a 200k a week center back is injured. A 295k a week center back is on the bench out of favor. And the guy on 90k who came in for 38 million is playing well. Now you go, oh well, he should just continue to play then because he's giving the club the most. But do you think Bailey just sits in his office and watches? Wage, and watch his wage bills get burned up every week for players that just sit on the bench. They probably tell Potter, well, if you say they're not playing well, get them to play well. Oh, I, I benched Kulibali because he's not playing well. Well, get him to play well. He's, he's earning 295k. He's our second highest earner. He should be playing. And so what does Potter do at that point? I'm not saying these conversations particularly happen, but I'm saying there is... You can understand why a player that is on in uh, of the status of Kulibali can't just be benched indefinitely like a Ziet, like a mount like a a, a, a chaloba if you understand what i mean so you understand that there's a lot of sport politics involved and where there's a lot of players Mikhail Modric has come has come in on 88k i don't know what wages is on but he was regarded highly by the club because they registered him for the champions league then there's Joel Felix, who came in, who spent about 11 million or 9 million on, on his 
as, as the loan fee. And I think we're paying him something north of 200 and something K a week. So he's, he's, we've paid a lot of money to get him in on loan. And then you say, oh, oh just play Kani Chuku Emeka there, or just play Messi Mount there. He's going to play anytime he's fit. And the more players you have that have to start for one reason or the other, the more, the less you, you the less flexibility you have. Guardiola doesn't have that problem because he holds the highest status at the club over any player. Yeah, he holds the highest status at the club over any player. So any player that comes in is second to him at the very least. So he can bench anyone, he can move any pieces around, and he, he, he no one asks him any questions at, at that. No one above him asks him any questions. Potter yeah, exactly. Because they have a culture where there's nobody bigger than the manager, and they have a culture like that at City and United and Liverpool and but, Arsenal, but, but and not, we don't have that. And we've never had that. Exactly. It's not as simple as player culture, I think, because I think even Guardiola, the status he came in with, he's a serial winner. He came in. He, he's the best manager the in the world, been, arguably ever. Yes, I mean, the guy is who he is. That's true. And, and most players that have come in have come in on the behest of him. That. Uh, maybe I'm not using that word well, I've come in on his authority. So he has gone, yes, I like that player, bring him in. So he, he also, in. like he also in his career has had a demonstrated history of he gets rid of the biggest egos in the squad immediately. Immediately. Yes. Because he yes, doesn't or, want or, any, there's no, con- or, it's easier to teach a player that. that hasn't like convinced themselves that they are who they are because of them and them only. It's easier to teach a yes. player but, but that is looking that to learn. Teaching. He didn't do that at City. I think he met David Silva. He did it to, he he did it to Yaya Torre, absolutely. Did it to Joe Hart. Did it to Kolarov. Okay, uh, did it to a lot several, A lot of the old guard, Demi Kalis. He did it to a lot of players at when he came into City. He, he, he got but, rid but of them. I, I, think, didn't use I think that was more because they didn't fit his style more than they were just big egos. But I get the point you're making. The point I'm, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think we're on the same page, though, is uh, the just have are so much bigger than all the all the players that they don't have to worry about, oh, what are they going to say if I bench Ruben Diaz for 15 games in the season? No one is going to ask me any question because I've demonstrated that I do what I want and the, the squad plays the way I want them to play. The squad behaves the way I want them to behave. Potter has not come in with that. And, and I think as Potter grows in his managerial career, he's going to get to that point. But as of right now, he's not there. And most importantly, there were many players who were, who were brought in because the, 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 the scouting department and the coaching staff and maybe Bailey felt, I think this is a good player to have on the playing staff. So these players may not necessarily have been requested by Potter, but they were, Potter was not given a choice, a choice in that he could say no. They, they could have asked him, oh, what do you think about this player? And he goes, oh, I think he's a very good player. I, they, they never asked him, do you want him? They just go, is he a good player? Yes, he's a good player. And the next day or the next two days, he hears that Chelsea is in a certain country to sign a certain player. And, you know, so I think there's a lot of players that have come in because they are good players and the scouting department likes them. I don't think they've been requested particularly by Potter, which, interestingly, is a point that I, I, I said people will start making for Potter when things go bad, and I'm the one making it now. But I, I have to be fair to Potter and agree that he has a lot of players to work with. It's not easy to just select select your 23-man squad and ignore the rest. It's not particularly that simple because there are many players in the squad that after you select 23 players, there's still 10 other players who are earning big money in the first team 
that are like, well, what about me? So I think that's a, a, a lot for, for, for a manager to work with. And then meritocracy becomes very tricky, is what, is what I was getting at. When you have that problem, meritocracy becomes tricky because you want to play Joel Felix on his merits, but he came in on loan, he's, he's earning a lot of money. What's the point of bringing a player in on loan? Because you were in trouble. Let's not forget, Chelsea was in trouble and we felt Joel Felix could help bring us out of it. Then we bring in Felix and then go, well, I don't think and they're he, giving us what we want to stay on the bench. It's as not bad as we've been, he's basically been our only help so far. So Exactly. He's, he's, he, he, showed, he, he played brilliantly in his first game and in his second game. His last two games have been shaky, but he's only had like five Chelsea games or four Chelsea games, and that's Fulham, a very small sample size. Yeah, his first three matches were Fulham, West Ham, Dortmund, and the guy was, I mean, the best player on the pitch every match. I mean, it wasn't even to me. I, I thought those first three matches were from from Jow were yeah, some yeah, of the I best agree. I've seen out of a Chelsea in a long, 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 long time. I, um, I think I think his last two games have been have been poor, but the the point remains that we thought we needed him. That was why we brought him in, and when we bring him in, one spot is filled. So there's already Pulisic, Zh Mount, and all these guys that you have to give playing time to. Then there's Felix, who is an important member of the squad, a key player who has to play. So it means we, we no longer have four four players contending for four positions or seven players or eight players contending for four positions. We now have six players contending for two positions or something like that. So it, it becomes very difficult to manage so, from a managerial point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of like honestly is great that you say that, that there's just too many there's too many available people for not enough positions. And that yeah. there's a, there's a there's a wage structure and politics and this and that. Yeah that are preventing a true meritocracy. And then you have so many players that you're only able to really implement your tactics at a very slow progression because there's just so many minds that you have to reach through to, which really gets yeah. us to our next question from Matt uh, at CFC underscore fielder. And he asked first, are there too many cooks in the kitchen for Potter when trying to implement an attacking football structure? And I think that without actually bringing your question up, we just answered your question in full. Yeah. Absolutely. There's way too many people. Like we've got in terms of wingers and striker forward. I mean, what? So we're maybe playing three to four of those positions every 11. And we probably have what? 10, 15 people to choose from in those, in those areas. You know, I, I definitely yeah. think that Ola just very well described how we have too many cooks in the kitchen in the attacking side. But I actually would go even further other than midfield and say we, we have too many cooks in the kitchen everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And, and another important point is, as for the cooks in the kitchen thing, when you are in the kind of form that we are in, and then Potter is trying to go a certain way, he would think, the fans would think, the players would think, when he plays this game, we don't win or we play poorly, he begins to go, oh, is it because I played this player? Could I have, would things be different if I played that player? And so the next game is very difficult to go. I'm still sticking to my guns. I'm playing the guys who played in the last game that didn't play particularly well just to build chemistry. Because I agree that we should build chemistry, but I said that when we had six players or five players contending mm -hmm. for three positions. Now we have like at least four more players across 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 the whole pitch. We have Kukurela and and and, and Chilwell at, at left back. We have, I mean, only James are right back, but we have a lot of centre-back options now that are on big money, either playing well or on big money. So you can't just go, oh, I'm going to stick with you and, and ignore the rest. You can't do that. Before, there's now Mikhail Modric in in addition to Harvard, Sterling, Pulisic, Ziyech. There's now Madweke, there's, there's Modric, there's Joel Felix. You know, it becomes very, very cumbersome and 
when you want to build something, I, I agree that an attack needs chemistry. But chemistry is, is very difficult to build when you have a lot of players you need to give playing time to. And whether you like it or not, it's not so easy for... You can say, well, Potter should just ignore some players and build chemistry with some players. But that's not particularly simple because when these players play two or three games, nothing comes out. We, the fans, will go, well, these guys have played and they're not showing anything. Bring the other guys in. And that's not how chemistry works. You need a, a certain squad depth, but you don't need three players deep, three, deep, three players deep in every position. And so I think to even cook anything at all, it becomes very, very complicated when you have a wide variety of players in a wide variety of positions. I mean, we have all these midfielders and we don't have a, a, a Georgina type player. And we have like six or seven central midfielders. So there's that problem. So we have a, a variety of players the particular profile we maybe need is not there in, in many areas of the pitch. So it, it, it becomes very, very difficult to, to manage, really. Yeah, it's it's just, it is. I, I completely agree. And the next part of the question is, um, his second one is, is our game uh, versus Bournemouth after the World Cup, we played without the ball a lot more. So why isn't Potter trying to do this again for a win and build some desperately needed confidence? So I think my first thing is, if you're going to build a player's confidence, you want to get them in their comfort zone. And I don't think that we have a squad that's more comfortable just sitting behind the ball, flying around, trying to win it and let the other team have it the whole game. I think that we're a squad that's more comfortable going at the opponent. So I think that's why we haven't really pursued that direction as much, even though I agree with you, Matt, I think there are some reasons to think that maybe a bit more counterattacking side would work right now. I just don't think that's really how a lot of these players are accustomed to nor prefer to play. Um, the yeah, next question. Sorry, I, I just want to add one tiny, one tiny thing to that. Enzo Fernandez is not very good off the ball. If you want him to be chasing around and, and doing the counter-attacking thing, it won't work as much. He's not very good with tackling. He attempts a lot of tackles and misses quite a lot of them. So if you don't give him control of the ball a lot, passing a lot to him, let him distribute, you're not going to have the midfield that you think you have if you try to implement that. So yes, your point is, your point is very valid. Yeah, I just think it's it's just not the way that these guys are. They didn't sign. They didn't sign for Chelsea to sit back 70 percent of the game waiting to counterattack. That's just not who we are, and that's not how we've tried to play since Mauricio Sarri. Um, next one comes in from Mark Andrew, who says, "Where does Sterling play to his fullest in the left or the right?" Um, I think he's better on the left myself. Um, I agree. I don't think it's a massive substantial difference. Like I don't, I mean, he's a, he's a highly talented professional footballer. That's probably been one of England's best players the last 10 years. I don't think that he, you know, it's one of those things where he has to play on the left or he has to play on the right to be effective. Mm -hmm. I think he can be effective in either structure, but I, I would just say left. I'm not sure what you would, what you would say. Yeah, I think he's left. So I think he's a left winger. I don't like him on the right because I think it goes against a lot of his instincts as a player, the kind of player he is. I think he likes to run behind. Uh, he likes to hug the top line and he likes to run behind the defensive line. So I think that suits him better on the left because he's a right-footed player. So I think he's better on the left. But I I think there are many things involved in in attack that even when he's on the left, a lot of other things still need to happen. Let's not forget at at Manchester City, he had a lot of players creating chances for him. KDB was always playing the ball through to him and. He, found himself in a lot of 1v1 situations on the end of a lot of big chances. At Chelsea, he doesn't particularly have that. 
So that also affects his, his output and his his productivity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think that, yeah, if we're going to say like one way or the other, he's probably a bit, a bit better on the left. Um, and I, I, I largely agree with you there. Um, yeah, and the next one comes in from Cheesecake Lover at Hearth 2010. Um, in the first, this is, so it's one of four questions. Um, so we'll try to get through as much as we can here before time's over. But uh, so the first one is, do we need a pacey fullback in the current setup? I think, I mean, I'll just answer very quickly. I think we have, like with Reese, I think he's, you know, the guy has pace if we need it. Um, and I think that we we can get by with what we have if we're going to keep a back four system. I don't think that Chilwell and Reese uh, should be people that we have to like consider upgrading upon. I think they're very, very good players in their own right. And whether that's in a back three or a back four, I don't know if you think we need to get some different full backs, but I mean, we already have, you know, Gusto Malo coming in. So yeah, I, I don't think we, I don't think fullbacks are our issue. I think our fullbacks are fine for whatever system we want to, whatever system we want to implement. I don't think we need to start worrying about the fullbacks now. It's 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 a matter of kind of like how we said, oh, we need another goalkeeper because I don't think we need another goalkeeper. I think we're fine in that department. I think we're fine in the fullbacks department. We have Chowell, Kukurela, we have Resumes, and then we also have Malogosto coming in in the summer. I, I think for for what we need our fullbacks to do, our current set of fullbacks are fine. We don't need them to be as fast as who we don't need them to be as fast as you know uh, Mohamed Salah or, or whatever it is you have. I think our fullbacks are fine for what we need them for. Yeah, I would. I'd agree. I don't think we have that. And the, kind of the second part of what they were saying with that is like Reese and Chile are both not attacking enough and are barely completing take-ons. Well, I think that that's because of look who they you know they're playing in a back four with Kuwabali and Fofana coming back from injury. So we probably didn't want them to bombard forward as much yesterday because that would put more strain and burden upon the two center backs that are primarily not been the starters in the league so far. Um, so, and then the second question is who fits well next to Enzo? Do we need to shift to a four, three, three or a three, four, two, one for him? Uh, I'll let you, I'll let you take that first part of it. Um, per, you can take the first crack at this and then I'll, I'll kind of chime in towards the end and we can go to his third question. His okay. I, I, who fits well next to Enzo? It's a very difficult question because Enzo Fernandez is the same profile of player as many of our other midfielders. He's a box-to-box midfielder. Kovacic is a box-to-box. Kante is a box-to-box. Lukasic is a box-to-box. Who else? Zakaria is a box-to-box. So who fits well next to Enzo? I think we may have to push him Taluba to midfield. That's one idea. The other idea is we may just have to to get someone who plays every will against their instinct because Kovacic wants to drive the ball forward. Uh, maybe you can get Zakara to just sit. I know Jose Mourinho was able to get Mikel Lobi to, to just sit. That's why the fact that he was more of an attacking midfielder for, for Nigeria, the national team. But I, I think that requires a lot of discipline and I don't know if we, we have that player. I think what we need beside Enzo is a Georginia-type player who is content just sitting, building up, also able to help us in defensive transitions, a very intelligent player who can cut out danger before it, it develops too quickly. Currently, I don't think we have the, the player we can pair with Enzo. Unfortunately, that's not the, the interesting answer people would have expected. 
but I don't think we have that player at the moment. Yeah, I don't really feel that we have somebody that's best suited to play next to Enzo because I think to get the best out of Enzo, you need to get him further forward. And to get him further forward, we have to take him out of being a lone central midfielder. So I don't really see how a switch to a 4-3-3, um, unless that's going to be an attacking 4-3-3 where you're using more of a cam in front of two central midfielders. Uh, I don't really see how that formation is going to get much more out of Enzo if because if you leave him at the base of a midfield three and he he's going to be basically that lone person, man, that's going to make his job even harder. And I think it's going to actually take more away from his skill sets that we can use for, for further forward the, uh, in the pitch because look at how good he has been already. He has shown again and again in almost every match, despite how poor we've been recently, he's still had at least one or more balls that are right over the top, breaking the lines, leading to you know what should be chances, but. We just have a lot of forwards that can't get on the end of anything. Um, so I just think right now we're going to have to persist. And if I had to pick who is best next to him, I'd probably go with uh, Zakaria. But I think that's also dependent upon the opposition because that is someone I would only really prefer to have him paired against in a against a high, a, a very high press system in terms of the opponents. Um, and then he asked, would you consider getting Felix back next summer? Would I consider? Absolute. I mean, I'm not just considering it. I'm ready to make this thing permanent right now. I, I mean, I don't know where you're at a lot, but I'm ready to see uh, Jao Felix be a permanent signing because this guy is the most electric attacker I've seen for many years now at Chelsea Football Club. I think that's a, it's too early to ask that question. We still only what five games, four games. It's, it's early to ask the question, and I say that because I've always thought of him in the squad is a, a player who can, who is who is content creating chances for other players, not necessarily one who is as interested in scoring as he is in creating chances. But I think to find the perfect balance with that is, is extremely intricate. I have not seen enough from Felix to suggest he would solve our chance creation issues. So I don't think I want to 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 invest another 80, 85 million into getting Felix back next summer. I agree that he's been an exciting player, but what we need is functionality, players who can produce for the squad, because he does look good when he plays. I'll admit that. He looks good when he plays. His first two games, he was the best player on the pitch by far. But I also think that getting him in the summer means you have him, you have Nkunku, you probably have Harvard, you have Ryan Sterling, you have, you know, there's a lot of players that are similar to him, is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. And mm -hmm. I think we may be better off getting a player who is just purely a chance creator. I, I don't really think, well, let me just give my answer. I, I would not go in the summer for Felix, but he's only played five games. And at the end of the season, my answer may be different. But for now, I don't think he solves the problem that we have in the squad at the moment. Yeah, so a little bit of the little bit there, or I'm going to say, yeah, you're going to say no. I think we will get more time to to see what where we're really at with that. And his final question here uh, comes in is any thoughts on Mudrick's output post Liverpool match? Given he isn't match fit, he still hasn't shown enough, regardless of how much he's played. And I think you know I'll start. And I'll let you finish out, and then we'll uh, kind of wrap this episode up quickly. Um, but I, I, you know, my thoughts on Mudrick is this guy had a really good cameo. I agree. Liverpool looked good, but since then it's just looked like he's so raw and unrefined. And I think a part of that is that he's not match fit because if you remember right, he hasn't played, you know, he, he really until Liverpool hadn't played a match since October. Uh, so he had about two, what, two, two and a half months off or so. 
Um, and then he really hasn't played a ton since he got into Chelsea. So I just don't think there's a whole lot of match fitness there. He's adjusting to new leagues, new teammates, new tactics, everything. So it is what it is. Um, yeah, I think I, I think he just he yeah. hasn't been good enough. I, I agree. I don't think the output's been there. And even the performances after Liverpool just have just been very blah. Uh -huh. Just very, yeah. very, very, there's nothing there that I'm getting excited about. Yeah, I think the the I think what the mistake we make is we use that Liverpool we 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 took too much from the Liverpool game and I'm also guilty of this by the way. We took too much from the Liverpool game. Liverpool were in bad form, still are anyway to me. They have had a lot of problems with personnel. They have a lot of players that can't get around as much and when Modric came into that game, he looked electric. He looked like, oh, he's going to set this league on fire. And I understand why we felt that way. Because he really had a good coming against, against Liverpool. But I, I think since then, he's come up against more disciplined opponents. He's come up against better opponents, more athletic opponents. And it's, it's honestly, I, I, I feel most of the, I feel most of the, of the, of the, of the dribblers, most players that are primarily dribblers don't particularly get that much joy in the Premier League. And I think he's going to he's, he's going to need more games. I agree that fitness is, is, is an issue. I agree that fitness is an issue. But I agree that he's, he's not been impressive since the Liverpool game. But I don't think that is an issue in and of itself. I think, and yeah, we're just going to probably need more time to see where that ultimately goes with Mudrik. Um, I thought he would even whenever we were linked to him, I was like, man, that's a lot of money for a guy that, despite how much talent he has and how much scouts rate him, he he seemed to me like a player that had a lot of variability in terms of where he's going to ultimately end up, whether it's you know top ten in his position in the world or just a mid-table player. I think there's a lot of variability with Mudrik. And that is admittedly the one signing I was not really on board with. Even when he was potentially going to Arsenal, my comments were basically, well, I've never even heard of the guy. So how is he not to be that person? But like, you know, if I haven't even heard of this player, let alone knowing if I haven't even heard of them and that right there, I feel like that's alone kind of hard to justify a hundred million on. Um, before we wrap up, there was one other question uh, from Kamal asking when he can uh, get back on the podcast. And we would love to have you back on sometime. Kamal would be great. Um, and, but thanks to everybody that put in a listener question this week. We really appreciate that. A lot of good engagement this week, and we hope you like our answers and where this podcast episode was today, but for everybody that listened and until next time, keep the blue flag flying high.